the only point I'm trying to make is like, man, we have to be aware of how these technologies are affecting the way we participate or do not participate in worship. So for example, the very fact that our song lyrics don't have notes to them and the fact that our people, because we don't use Tim's, we don't, most of us don't know even how to read notes because we've never been taught. It's not a value. The only way I can sing the song we're going to sing on Sunday is if you told me about the song beforehand and I listened to it again on Spotify or Pandora or whatever, I have to consume the song, you know, and that we have to be aware like that in and of itself is communicating in a subversive way. This is like a song written and recorded by a professional band called Hillsong or Bethel or whatever, you know, and it's really great. And then you have all sorts of other psychological things happening because when you show up to your church on Sunday morning, chances are no matter how great or awesome the worship leader at your church is, they're not going to sound like the recording you listen to, you know, and the volunteer lead guitar player is not going to shred that solo quite the way the Hillsong dude did it, who does this professionally, you know, and towards the world or whatever. So then you've got to reckon with like what that does to us is, you know, are we consuming or participating? How many times have you heard people say like, oh, the worship was so good today? Which, which what they mean is like the music sounded good or any of the words. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a fascinating thing. So, yeah, I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Seth, you are you. This is a podcast and times are crazy. Those of you that have listened to the show for a long time, you know, I work at a bank and can't tell you how I walk away each day. Just so, I don't know what the word is. Sad. Sad doesn't quite fit it. Times are crazy. When I sat down with today's guest, Jay Kim, I'm pretty sure it was right at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. And many states had not yet made decisions on what they wanted to do. And we talked about church, but church in a way that isn't the way that we normally do it. The name of Jay's book is called Analog Church. And that word analog means a lot of different things. Like so many visions come to my head. But I hadn't really put that word with church before. Jay and I talk about the meaning and the intention behind how we do church and why community matters not the building not the bricks not the music not the youtube cover band up on the stage and honestly i've thought back on things that jay wrote about as i've watched people do church differently over the past few weeks and honestly i don't know when we won't do church differently over the coming weeks so i find this conversation with jay just timely, really timely. I hope you're well. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Jay Kim, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> um, well, we'll see. Thrilled is a big word, so we shall see. right that's Uh, true yeah right yeah i'm assuming you probably haven't listened to any of the past ones right or maybe you have some people have some people haven't i've listened to uh yeah yeah i've I've gone back and listened to little snippets yeah just to get a feel for i just want to make sure we 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 level set with thrilled i just want to make sure we level (laughs) (laughs) no man i'm pumped to be here i'm looking forward to it yeah perfect i always like to start with a similar question in just a different way because i'm not really interested in your cv or your resume but when like someone says hey jay so who are you and you're like yeah these are the important things that you need to know about me like what's that answer yeah, I'm the son of an, an immigrant woman who uh, came all on her own and raised me on her own. And so I am, uh, I'm, I'm hybridity, right? I am the hybrid of uh, uh, South Korean roots and an American upbringing. And uh, that was a tension for me as a kid, but it's a gift for me as an adult now. Um, I love it. And um so that's one thing about me too. I, uh, I'm a husband and a father. I mean, that's kind of the most, uh, 
pertinent daily realities of my life. Being home right now, uh, my two littles are right outside this door. If you hear a little bit of uh, ruckus, I apologize. Bring them on. It's fine. That's, <laughs> that's my mic picking it up in the background. And then my wife, who is the high school teacher and... Um, yeah, my best friend. Uh, and then thirdly, I uh, I would say I, I serve and lead in the local church. So people call me a pastor. I don't think biblically I do the work of pastoring most of the time. I'm probably more of a teacher and um, reader of books and regurgitator of ideas. <laughs> That's probably what I do most most of the time professionally. Uh, but you know, the technical title, I guess, for most people would be pastor. So I do that. And uh, I love all of those things. So there you go. That's me, I think. <laughs> yeah, is hybridity a word? I've never heard that used in a sentence. Uh, you know, the guy who wrote the forward in my book uses that word. He's a pretty smart guy. I think that's where I got it from. He Scott, calls it hybridity. S- Scott, Scott, definitely. He made that up. It's fine, though, because he's Scott. Yeah. He, can, he can do that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 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 I don't know. So that. it's I, real now because yeah. <laughs> it's in print. He, he made it real. Yeah, there you <laughs> it's, go. It's real. definitely in print. <laughs> so... I want to I want to pivot to something you just said although yeah why not so you said you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a pastor like what do you see as the role of a pastor versus what you do like how would you delineate between those two Yeah well I think what I meant was biblically when we look at uh, first and foremost the word pastor and two sort of the functionality of what pastors did at least um in the early church uh you know the word itself uh, implies a sort of shepherding and a relational journeying and um, almost a, a fathering of a community of people in a very intimate, tangible way. Certainly that's a part of my life uh, on relational levels with some people, but I think in the modern evangelical world, when we hear the word pastor, most people are thinking about, uh, you know, um, at least somewhat charismatic, sometimes not so much, but somewhat charismatic, dynamic sort of personality who stands on a stage that talks and monologues for 35, 40 minutes a week. And they're supposed to um, inspire us and help us in pragmatic ways and uh, maybe entertain us a little bit and all those things. And Hmm. some of that is biblical, uh, some of it isn't. But for all intents and purposes, all I mean is I fit into that classic modern evangelical role of pastor. I just don't know that that's like the the actual biblical act of pastoring. Mm. Um, I I do that a little bit sometimes in my life for certain people. Um, But that's not really, I wouldn't call that like my day job, you know? That, that's all I need. My day job is all sorts of things that aren't really biblical pastoring. <laughs> They're important for sure. Um, and I, I love them and value them and important for the life of the church. But that's all I meant. Well, you said it and I was like, I hadn't really thought about that. Because for me, pastoring is not necessarily the person that preaches ever. Mm. Because a pastor for me is like going to, a pastor for me should, I don't, I'm saying this bad. I'm, I'm actually not saying it at all. I haven't figured out how to say it badly yet, but I'm going to try. Like like someone that's going to come down into the congregation and just ugly cry with you and yeah. say nothing, say nothing at all while yeah. someone else preaches. If that makes any sense, like preaching versus yep, pastoring. Totally. I don't know. I feel like I'm still not. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, that's a great dichotomy. I'm probably more a preacher than I am a pastor. That's all I'm at. So what's your favorite thing to preach on? Like it's a go-to text. Everybody's got like their three things. Like what's the one that you're like, I didn't have time to write this one. Here's where I'm going. Oh, yeah, dude. Probably anything in Leviticus. <laughs> really? Just, yeah, just any verse. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Kidding me? Get out of here. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I, I love Genesis 1 2 are always, uh, I, I do, uh, that I mean seriously. Um, Genesis 1 2, I think, uh, frame the rest of the story and. Um, so Genesis 1-2, Revelation 21-22, so the book ends, I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the Gospels, Jesus, all the way. Yeah, yeah. So That's... if you're asking favorites, there you go. Yeah, well, there's, um, at least my pastor, like, he's been our pastor now for a little over five years. And there's at least a few of the stories that I'm like, I've heard this one before. Let's see how he does this yeah. time. I know where he's going. Let's see. Hey, I like this. You did it better. There's a little more conviction in this one. Um, <laughs> and if you're listening, Barrett, I'm, I'm sorry. But it's true. You know it's true. He knows it is true. So, um, so yeah. Awesome. Uh, so you wrote 
a book called Analog Church, which I do want to... So elephant in the room, the fact that we can't do things in analog ways because we're recording this at like day 17 of the world exploding because of the yeah. coronavirus, which by the time yeah. people hear it will not be true. But nothing really is analog anymore. But I don't really know how to yeah. ask questions about that. If we get there, we'll get there. But I do want to ask about that yeah. a bit. But more so, when you say the word analog church, like what do you actually mean? Because I think people hear that. And like at least when I read the cover before I read anything else, I th- had a picture in my mind of like high church. Like the church that you go to, not with your kids. The church that you sit yeah. in, in the uncomfortable pews. So what do you mean when you say analog church? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I think uh, just analog, the word in and of itself, um, has some elasticity of meaning, but primarily it means tactile, physical, tangible realities. Uh, it can mean lots of other things, but it's all based on that sort of baseline. Um, so by analog church, that's essentially what I mean. And, and more Christian uh, ways to say it might be what I mean by analog church is embodied physical tactile, present, real space, real time church, Um, a church where people actually continue to physically gather, show up, uh, share life with one another in real, again, embodied, tactile, physical, tangible ways. Um, that's, that's primarily what I mean. And, and yeah, you know, I've, I've heard that, um, several times from people that when they saw the title, they thought I was, the book was about essentially high church, you know, Mm -hmm. high high liturgy, that kind of thing. And, uh, it's not, not about that, but it's definitely not primarily about that specifically. Um, and, and I, I think I'm using the word analog in sort of a broader, more baseline sense. Um, another way to say it would be like, non-digital. <laughs> I'm talking about a church that is non-digital, which is so interesting because our church, like most churches, have gone totally digital in this COVID-19 reality that we're in. Um, so yeah, by analog church, that that's what I mean. Physical, embodied, you know, the Christian theological idea behind it might be the incarnation. You know, I'm talking about an incarnational in the flesh experience of what it means to be the people. I do want to be real clear. So I have read the book from front to back. So I'll I'll feign ignorance for the remainder of the conversation because because those listening have not. Yeah. So how, why I can't see. So here we go. So you're a pastor, minister, priest. I don't care what the word is in a church. You paid for a church that most likely has fancy music and all that stuff as well. I don't, I, I didn't Google your church uh, and, yeah, and, yeah, and sure. stream a sermon or any of that, but that's just the way church happens. So what yeah. makes someone on a staff with an inherent need for things to work the way that they normally do work to go, you know what, we need to talk about a way to do church differently. Like, how is that? Like what, what pops, what happens on a Sunday that you're like, you know what, no, I need to write this. Like kind of, how did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, yeah, you know, the church where I serve now is uh, we're, we're I, I don't know, I guess you you would call us a medium-sized church. I don't know. We're, we're, if you include kids and babies and everything, Half all million. ages, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're probably like, you know, about 600 people on uh-huh. a Sunday. So that's a pretty big church, you know, in terms of relatively speaking, uh, but we're certainly not like a mega giant whatever. Uh, we gather in a 1938 Presbyterian red brick building um, in a sleepy, eclectic little beach town called Santa Cruz, California. Um, and uh, our building, our sanctuary actually is small. It only seats about 200 people max. That's like shoulder to shoulder. So we gather um, three different times on a Sunday, typically. Uh, but it feels pretty intimate because there's rarely more than 150 to 175 adults in the room at a time. So that's big, but it's small enough where we can see each other and know each other and get familiar with mm-hmm. one another um, over time. So uh, that's where I serve now. However, um, I've been on staff at that church for about four years. But before that, I served for several years at like um, uh, the largest, one of the largest mega churches, multi-site mega churches in town. And it was like total multi-site video venue, the whole mm-hmm. thing, you know, and, and it was re- really, and they're a wonderful church, I'm not bashing them, but it was really around that time. I served as a teaching pastor there when um, pretty regularly I was getting up on a, on a big giant stage with big lights and I was 
preaching to some people in the room, but then I was also looking at this like little camera in the back of the room uh, because I was told that I had to look at the camera because of hundreds of other people that I couldn't see or hear or touch were going to meet in, in other rooms across the city, not even on that day, on the next day and watch this video of me. So I had to talk to this hmm. camera. And, and I remember that one experience being really fascinating. I was like, this is strange. Like it feels... One, it felt, you know, on the surface, disingenuous a little bit. And two, I just like, I really struggled to make that connection. And more than anything, I just, I had this deep, innate desire to be with those people. Like if I, if I was going to share some thoughts and ideas with them, I felt like, man, I'd love to see their faces and their reactions. And I'd love to talk to them after I'm done talking. And I'd love to stand next to them and sing with them. And I'd love to take the bread and the cup of Eucharist with them. You know, all these things that just kept bubbling up inside of me. So uh, that's really when it started. And um, when I got to the church where I serve on staff now, um, as a church, we've just tried to, again, same word, we've tried to embody some of these things uh, in just small, small ways. And so that's where the book came from. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. again, any sort of like anger or bitterness. It was just questions and things I was feeling inside from my own experience. And then seeing some of that stuff, um, I think move in a healthy direction uh, with the church where I'm on staff now. And um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of what gave birth to this thing. I have a question about mega churches. So I've, well, so I went to Liberty, which if you go to Liberty and you go to convocation, from what I've been told, it's like the largest Christian gathering every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the Western hemisphere. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's like 11,000 people in one time. So I don't know how big churches get. So, um, But it's not really church either. You, you show up because they make you or you can't graduate. And, and um, yeah, so it's compulsory attendance. Um, yeah. So that's, that's everybody really wants to be there. But do you, th- yeah, churches can, those mega churches don't really, to me, seem like they require much commitment. Um, and they allow people to not have to, have to know people there's you're not yeah. elbow to elbow in a 200 seater in a 600 person church you know it's, yeah. it's not so do you think that churches will continue to trend that way um or oh, the other like the opposite like the no we really should have like 50 member churches and just deal with it like and those are both extremes i'm well aware of that like just yeah and not, yeah. not really related to the book just genuinely curious because you've been on both ends like in your experience what do you what do you think um, yeah, I mean, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know, you know, my, uh, my friend, Andy Crouch, he has this, he just recently told me this about six months ago. It's really fascinating. He says, he thinks that the future of that sort of church, the big giant over 10,000 people sort of mega church, um, that they won't go away but that there will become less and less of them. And his, you know, and he's sort of prophetic with this stuff usually, but he, uh, his, his guess is that, you know, most major cities and urban centers across America, right now, a lot of them have like three or four of these types of churches. He thinks in the future what will happen is most cities and urban centers will have like one. There will be one giant hub of like the, 10,000 plus giant spectacle show type thing. Uh, but he thinks that they will gather probably a fairly um, aging community. And that what we will then see uh, as, as other large churches like that in those towns and cities sort of um, change and evolve, we'll see not necessarily only like house churches or anything like that. I'm a big fan of churches of all sizes, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he thinks we'll see more like medium size to smaller size and maybe even some like sort of big churches, but not the mega, like several of the mega, whatever. Um, And I tend to agree with him one, just because he's really smart, but two, (laughs) um, the way he's, he's sort of mapping it out in terms of the trajectory of younger generations. I mean, I think we're seeing that, at our church for one, and we're seeming, you know, I live in the Silicon Valley, uh, the, the epicenter of digital technology. And we're definitely, it feels like we're seeing that amongst, especially amongst um, younger generations even here. So uh, I'm not against large churches. In fact, I actually think the future for large churches won't necessarily to get small. I think it'll, uh, it's more about creating warmth rather than trying to be cool. 
And I think if we can do that, then even in churches that maybe represent thousands of people, uh, you can lean into creating spaces that feel warm and intimate. Um, some of that does have to do with the size of the room. So it might demand more gatherings than mm-hmm. less, you know, mm-hmm. rather than 4,000 people in one giant room, it might be 400 people in, in the a smaller room 10 times over a weekend or something. So um, I think we can, you know, I think there's a future for large churches. I hope there is because I think there's a lot of good that comes from churches of all sizes. So yeah, those are some thoughts. Yeah. I began reading your book while my daughter tried to do gymnastics. She's really struggling for the back handspring. She could do it. She just doesn't know she can do it. But she bounces 19 times after that huge cartwheel. And I'm like, just keep going over. So yeah. in between watching <laughs> her and reading your book, um, I highlighted so many different spots. And I kept highlighting a different key word. But early on in your book, you say something. Is it fine if I quote your book back to you? Please, yeah. yeah. So you say, since its earliest days, the Christian church has been marked by its invitation to transcendence, not relevance. And relevance makes a lot of sense, especially in today's culture. But what do you mean by transcendence? Because I think people hear that, and they're going to go a million different places. The old reptilian part of my brain that was beat into me, I'm just, I immediately think rapture, but I know that's not what you're saying. <laughs> so, um, nor am I, it's what, nor is that what I think now. It's just, that's the trigger. That's, that's what happens to so post-traumatic stress. So what do you mean when you say transcendence there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess most simply what I mean is that which transcends the ordinary, normal, mundane, everyday, expected, unsurprising reality of, of life. Um, so that's a big sort of way to say it, but that is genuinely what I mean. That which transcends, uh, the stuff that we expect and the stuff that we know and are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important to me is because when we, um, when we, when we see transcendence against the backdrop of relevance, if you take away the words and you just ask, go based on definition, you know, I thought that that would be a helpful dichotomy because it, it's, it's pretty clear to me that in so many of our churches, if you take away the words, um, it seems like by their definition, what so many of us and so many of our churches are, are trying to do is be relevant. You know, it's one of the reasons why uh, there's entire industry of um, companies that, uh, you know, help your church get into the latest and greatest of, you know, like the, furthest edges of digital technology and, yeah. and the latest and greatest in lighting and sound. And I'm not bashing those things. I think there are tempered, um, tasteful ways to maybe use some lighting and sound and all of that. And, and I'm definitely grateful for skilled uh, sound techs who make things sound good. You know, I think that's great. But we, we churches put so much of an emphasis on that stuff. And I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to make the point that it, when we do, just know we're running hard into relevance. We're just trying to look, sound, and feel like everything else. You know, we're trying to keep up with the technological spectacle of Joneses, essentially. And when we do that, I think we miss out on the, the very gift of what it means to be the church, which is the opportunity to create transcendent spaces, spaces uh, that don't look, sound, and feel like everything else and everybody's over-digitized life but rather invites people to take a deep breath in a space that feels so other and so unlike everything else. And the way to define that is just to ask, what is everyone's life like? And let's how, what is the Christian call to create spaces that aren't like that? So in the digital age, everything is fast and everyone's in a rush. Mm-hmm. So a transcendent thing is not necessarily to do like magic. It's just, what if we just created space that was slow? And that um, took its time. That's transcendent in the digital age, you know, or, um, yeah, so there you go. I could go on and on, but. uh, I want to ask a question about that. So um, being that many people church hop or they have their own expectations about, and I think you actually use, I don't remember what page it is because I didn't write it down, but you use the word church shopping or church hopping or church, some of that. And it's in in italics, I think as well. Anyway, I can't remember it. Page like 872. There's not that many pages in there, but you know what I mean. Um, so I think most people come to church with an expectation of minimal participation, like watching an yeah. NFL game at my couch. Like I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to participate, but I'm going to participate tomorrow when I'm comfortable yeah. participating Monday morning quarterbacking your sermon or yes. the music or whatever. Yes. So 
as a pastor or as someone reading the book or maybe a pastor reading the book or whatever, how do you, how do, you do that as, at a church-wide level without um, the membership falling apart so the church doesn't sustain uh, and, and preparing people to do that, especially because unless you're a church intentionally built to do that, I think the people that are already there or the people coming have a different expectation of what to expect. So how do you pivot a church into that? Of, yep. of, of leaving yeah. that room. Yeah, that's a great question, Seth. I, I would, you know, and I think what you said earlier is like, is so important that how do you do that without essentially ruining your church? You know, like, how do you do that without um, thumping them over the head with a Bible, you mm-hmm. know, and doing it, right? It's like all of a sudden they show up and you've just turned the tables on them. They're totally not used to it. So I think that's a great, that's a great, really important point. Uh, and it, it gets back to pastoring what we started the conversation with earlier, you know, to pastor our people. Well, it doesn't mean that we, um, have to, you know, that we just sort of like the moment we see, we recognize some shortcoming or, or whatever, uh, you know, we go crazy and <laughs> just expect people to change overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to pastor them. We have to journey with them. So if we are currently leading, serving and leading in churches where really the expectation of our community is to show up and uh, consume a product rather than participating in creating worship together as the family of God, then I think we have to do the hard work of just saying, okay, what is the very next step we could take? to take our people in that direction and then take a step further after that. And after that, and there's such a wide variety of ideas there, but you know, for example, like uh, communion to me is one of the most, it's one of the most accessible and yet deeply participatory reminders of what it means to be the church. You know, I would argue if, if you're doing like a, you know, quarterly communion Sunday or whatever. My my opinion is that's not nearly enough. Hmm. You know, Jesus leaves us a meal, the bread and the cup by which to remember him. And I cannot fathom why we wouldn't do that, break bread and drink of the cup to remember the risen Christ. I can't, you know, fathom why we wouldn't do that as much as possible every time we gather and it is every time we gather it is by its very nature a communal exercise you know um uh so that's one idea you know i think a lot of it sometimes like uh, music is a is an easy example because um we so in the digital age especially we are so accustomed to thinking about music as something we consume so i talk to worship leaders and worship pastors all the time who get so incredibly frustrated because they're like man our band practices and we sound so awesome then we lead worship on sunday and the people just have their hands in their pockets and they're kind of humming along and swaying back and forth (laughs) and i i get the frustration but i would say two things one maybe it's the very fact that your band is so professional Mm -hmm. that communicates inadvertently that this is music to be consumed because that's the way most people think about music this is like a Recent phenomenon, right? We went from a thousand songs on a little device called the iPod in 2001 to less than, you know, two decades later, I could find over 50 million songs on Spotify. Yeah. So like, I mean, when we think about music today, most people are thinking music is something I consume. They are not thinking music is something I create. And yet the invitation of the church week after week is to come and create. So if our bands are leaning toward relevance, just we're just going to sound like Spotify, every all the bands on Spotify or whatever, then no wonder people are like, oh, this is another piece of music I consume, you know? And I'm not saying bands should not practice and be excellent. <laughs> I absolutely think they should be because it's distracting if they're not. But I think they've got to do, you know, worship leaders have to do the hard work of, okay, let's sound excellent. But um, uh, craft and cultivate this space in a way where it's very clear we're inviting participation. Yeah. And as a worship leader, I'm not just worship. I'm not just leading the six musicians up here. I'm leading the 200 people out here. Like I am the worship leader for the entire community, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, there you go. I think there's little steps we can take in, in that direction. I want to stay on worship for a minute, but I want to say something first. So I actually do lead the worship for our church, and I don't know how big our church oh, cool. is, maybe four or five, six hundred members. It, it, it really, yeah. probably, you know, I don't know how many people, four or five hundred a week yeah. come. Um, yeah. But I find the weeks that I'm trying to make the music sound good, 
I don't personally worship. And um, the weeks that I get the most feedback of people saying, you know, I really, like that was helpful. Like I really, yes, t- today was, because I, I like when people give me feedback, though I don't usually yeah. respond because my wife will tell you I don't, I don't, I don't accept praise or criticism well. I just kind of, cool. And I just keep right on rocking and rolling. Um, but the weeks in this, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but the weeks that I honestly don't care, if like you were in the, if the, in the congregation, I don't care if you worship, but I know that I'm worshiping. Those seem to be the weeks that everyone else is also able to worship with me, if that makes any sense. Wow. And I'm aware of how yeah. selfish that sounds. I know, especially as I say it out loud, but I find if I'm not worshiping, if I'm too worried about the notes, the rhythm, the tempo, oh shoot, we slipped into three, four, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. The, but the weeks that I'm able to actually worship and forget that I'm on a stage are the yeah. weeks that everyone else actually also worships as well. At least yep. that's what I've been told. Um, you yep. staying on worship, you talk about whole body participation and there's a part in here. Where is it? Nope. I can't find it. Yeah. So what, yeah. Where is it at? I thought I highlighted it and I didn't. You, where is it? Worship as we see it versus, gosh, where did it go? Do you know where I'm at? You don't know where I'm at. No, I don't have my book in front of me. Yeah, um, hold on, I'll find it. Um, no, so you, or, it's all right, I'm going to pivot away from that because I can't find it. I thought I had it highlighted in the page number written down, and apparently I don't. Um, instead, I'll go to the other part of that chapter that I want to talk about. So you talk, and you talked about it a minute ago, of you have 90 bajillion songs in Spotify, and... Um, worship being something we consume. You talk in here a bit about in the 18th century, you know, Charles Wesley wrote basically all the hymns. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that it, what it did was it it focused the collective gaze of the community downward. And so I like the, the hymnal. Vi- yeah. yeah. I like the, the book, visual yeah. of that, but I'm curious as to how that would break worship. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't trying to make a strong point about that. I think I was in that section of the book. I'm just trying to paint a trajectory of how we got to where we are in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, and what's funny is like, I should have included the Spotify stuff and sort of the ephemeral nature of music previously. I touch on it, but I've done a little more work on it since then. So I'm like a little bummed that, you know, the, the <laughs> book's done. So, you know, I'll you to, could amend it, I'm sure. Like a, Send it in. Yeah, I'll Version do an amendment two. later. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'm just trying to paint a picture, you know, before hymnals and such, our song choices were limited, right? Because like any song you're having together has to be stuff that's committed to memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then once we got the hymnal, that's when hymnody ex- exploded, essentially. It's when Charles Wesley just started writing thousands of songs because we could keep them all, we could keep, keep track of them all in this book, you know? And not only do the books have words, lyrics, the books also had the notes. And most people, the notes are pretty simple to learn once you once you learn it. So most people, you know, you can say hymn number 426 and everybody could sing it because the notes are there and the words are there and the tempo is there. So if you have like a basic leader, they're not performing, you're not humming along. Everyone's just kind of jumping in because you've got it right there in front of you. But also like you're visually, your, your gaze is fixed down below at a book, you know, because you're looking at the lyrics and you're reading the notes. And, and then, you know, when we got to the 20th century, late 20th century, we had the, the, the overhead projector, you know, transparencies. I used to run those in youth group in the 1990s. And all the, the pastor's kid my... just switches, switches the thing out and hope you don't get it upside down. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. Man. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, that fixed our gaze upward, but we also lost something, right? We lost several things, but one of the things we lost is like transparency slides and such unlike hymnals don't have notes so even though we're not looking down at a hymn book anymore we're all sort of looking up we can sort of just peripherally see one another you only see the lyrics you know i don't know how to sing that song and and that's been taken further now with like you know pro presenter and all those things which Mm -hmm. we use and it's super helpful Mm -hmm. but um you know, the only point I'm trying to make is like, man, we have to be aware of how these technologies are affecting the way we participate or do not participate in worship. So for example, the very fact that our song lyrics don't have notes to them and the fact that our people, because we don't use Tim's, we don't, most of us don't know even how to read notes because we've never been taught. It's not a value. The only way I can sing the song we're going to sing on Sunday 
is if you told me about the song beforehand and I listened to it again mm-hmm. on Spotify or mm-hmm. Pandora or whatever, mm-hmm. I have to consume the song, you know, and that we have to be aware like that in and of itself is communicating in a subversive way. This is like a song written and recorded by a professional band called Hillsong or Bethel or whatever, you know, and it's really great. And then you have all sorts of other psychological things happening because when you show up to your church on Sunday morning, chances are no matter how great or awesome the worship leader at your church is, they're not going to sound like the recording you listen to, you know, and the volunteer lead guitar player is not going to shred that solo quite the way <laughs> the Hillsong dude did it, who does this professionally, you know, and towards the world or whatever. So then you've got to reckon with like what that does to us is, you know, are we consuming or participating? How many times have you heard people say like, oh, the worship was so good today, which, which what they mean is like the music I sounded the, good. I knew the words is what they mean. I knew, or I knew, the, I knew words. the words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so... <laughs> It's just a fascinating thing. Oddly enough, when I sing music, the ones that I enjoy doing the most are the ones that nobody knows the words to. Um, But I Mm. think it's because... It's not on K-Love, and so I don't have to compete with... Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, like what really bothers... So there's like a countdown timer sometimes in our church, and I told our pastor this, like I'm like, don't play the song that we're about to play right before we play it, because that's disrespectful, that's hateful, it's unrealistic expectations. None of this is okay. (laughs) None of this is okay. Totally. Um, Totally. You touch on the Tower of Babel, Um. I believe you touch. Yeah, you do touch on the power of Babel. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, again, see, I'm not as prepared as I should be here. Where is it at? Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah. So you use the word babbling, which I think is this third word we're going to make up today's conversation. I can't remember the third <laughs> one, but hybridity. Uh, but babbling and its effect on community. And I want to find where I highlighted it. Yeah. So you say one of the most dangerous things about our babbling is its propensity to radically lower our expectations of one another. As our interactions are mostly comprised of our showerless articulations, we begin to see others only superficial, as others as only superficial characters. And this has a, this in turn has a toxic effect on our understanding of community. Um, and so I wondered if you could set some context of when you say babbling, what do you mean? And I will say the story at the beginning of that chapter, like I read it a few times and I'm like, Every two days, I do that. Like, I'm talking about the, your daughter saying, No more email, daddy. Uh, that's the story. Oh, there at yeah, the and I'm like, Ah, oh, I do that all the time. Um, but can you kind of contextually say, like, when you say babbling, like, how does babble, and by that, we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel a bit, like, how does that comprise to a digital analog way that we do church and the way that we do, you know, just the digital age overall? Yeah. Well, yeah, we could talk more about the Tower of Babel story found um, for the tail end of that opening section of Genesis, Genesis 11, which is all sort of one overarching narrative to tell us how the uh, human story went so awry. But, you know, that whole section culminates in the story of the Tower of Babel, where people all over the world, every person essentially, build this. And their, their core idea is we have to build this tower to reach the heavens, to make a name for ourselves so that we, we are not, not scattered. Um, and so their fear is to be scattered, right? They don't want to get scattered. And uh, essentially, in, in their pursuit of making a name for themselves to sort of solidify their place on the, on, on the planet, um, God undoes the work. And he, it says he um, essentially confuses their languages. And that's, that's sort of the origins of all these different languages, at least in the biblical narrative telling of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, what's fascinating is, you know, God in undoing sort of their uh, selfish ambition, um, he basically takes them to, he scatters them, which was the very thing they were afraid to do, like they were afraid of. And I'm just, I'm using that story as a parallel for what I think is happening in the digital age, we have these digital technologies uh, that we think we've been told are supposed to connect us, create one global village, 
and make us one and connect us with everybody and a deeper sort of connection than we could, you know, we've ever experienced before and all those sorts of things. And what all of the data is actually showing us is with, you know, with the rise of the internet parallel to the rise of the internet has been a rise in feelings of isolation and anxiety and loneliness Mm -hmm. and a sense of isolation. So the very thing we were afraid of, the very thing we thought these tools and technologies were going to create for us, um, they've turned us into just these babbling uh, sort of people who, who don't know how to really deeply connect with one another, you know, and um, that means all sorts of things. And I'm not attacking, you know, particular mediums. Like I love Twitter. I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time and I get a lot of I don't know, I get a lot of laughs from Twitter and some good information from time to time from Twitter. But also, let's be honest, there's a ton of babbling on Twitter. And we have to, you know, like if I want real depth, I don't go to Twitter. I, I read a book. Or Definitely go to Facebook. With some, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, it's not, not Twitter, more. it's Facebook, right? That's where we go. Or Snapchat, you know, for real depth. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So, um, I think we we find ourselves in, in really similar situation as, as yeah yeah your story at the beginning and I'm not going to say the story just because people should buy the book and read the story themselves for those keeping score I think it's on like page ninety eighty six something like that um, but it reminded me of a song from one of my favorite musicians um, maybe it's not a song I think it's spoken word from Propaganda you have to know who Propaganda yeah, is I think everybody yeah, knows Prop yeah, is yeah uh, he talks about his um cheating on his wife with his black wife but by that he means yes. like his iphone and i don't know yes. if that's what it's called but it's i think it's spoken word and yep. it's just powerful yeah. it's like a powerful six seven minutes there yeah so i have a couple questions that i want to end with and but i have another question first so you have a chapter literally called how to read a book and so i intentionally skimmed this chapter but two questions, just because I'm a smart aleck, why would you not begin with a chapter called How to Read a Book if you bought a book that you're about to read? And then by that, I'm assuming you mean the Bible. And then so how do I read a book? But the first question first, like, why would you just not begin with that chapter on you know, how to read a book? I don't know, man. Maybe I should have. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. No, I, I wanted to set the, you know, how to read a book. It is about reading the Bible. It's pretty specific. So uh, I've, I felt like, Starting That's with just the digital analog, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the digital analog stuff was important to set set the tone first, mm-hmm. um, and then you know I thought worship and community are actually more primarily the things people sort of viscerally feel in their own lives, like digital age is affecting worship and tech and community. I don't think too many people think like think about how it's affecting the way that they read, and particularly the way they read the Bible or mm-hmm. don't read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saved that sort of for the end because I thought it was a little bit more niche specific. Um, but it's actually a funny thing you asked that it's probably personally, um, the parts uh, of the book, those two chapters were the parts of the book that I had the hardest time writing, but enjoyed writing the most. (laughs) Why, why had the hardest time writing? What about that? Because I, I I get you, like, I agree with a lot of what you say in here. So why, why had the hardest time writing that? What was, what was so difficult? Yeah, um, I just hadn't thought about it as much. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it actually, the first two sections or first three sections about discipleship to Jesus in the digital age and then worship and community, those are things I had a long, long time for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the sections on how to read the Bible and how the digital age is sort of undoing the way we even think about reading and ingesting information uh, it, that was, that was much more recent. So I, I felt like I was like writing on the fly, to be honest. Um, one of those chapters, my editor came back to me, sh- shout out to my editor, Ethan McCarthy, brilliant man. He came back to me and he's like, just cold and brutal. He was like, Hey man, he, he put some edits in and at the end of it. He said, Hey man, be honest with you. This entire chapter makes no sense. <laughs> you have to rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, and you're like, you're oh. up. Here's why. And so, I actually, I have two versions of that chapter because I just had to rewrite the whole thing. But uh, really hard to do. But um, I enjoyed it, and I think it's important. I think we need to re-engage the way we. Yeah, there's a part in here which literally made me laugh out loud. Where you're talking about, uh, you know, at the earliest New Testament manuscripts are written in Greek in all caps with no space in between the words and minimal punctuation, and then you literally just have like a sentence yelling at me of, you know, think about reading like that, just like a run on <laughs> yelling sentence. Yeah. 
Um, I honestly just want to type that on Twitter with no context. Just take that, put it on Twitter, hit send, and be done with it. Um, just, as, just as, I might. Yeah, I'll do it tonight. Why not? I, I wanted to ask you a bit about what you said at the beginning. So why Genesis 1 and 2? Like if I sat down at your church or you came to mine and you're like, here's where I'm going to lean on, I could do this from memory. Like what am I going to walk away with where I'm like, huh, like what what approach do you take to Genesis 1 and 2? Because you could go a, a lot of ways. Like we could go young earth creationism. We could go everything's a metaphor. We could like you could go so many different ways. So what what's your approach there? I'm, I'm genuinely curious because I was expecting you were going to get a Pauline epistle or the Gospel of John, or you know the 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 the, the yeah. you know the the Patron at the top shelf. But most people don't go with the Genesis. Yeah, yeah. The Genesis is maybe the Jose Cuervo or something. I, I don't know. It's a, great, um, it's a great, it's a great brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, man. I um, well, there are lots of fascinating conversations. You know, like you said, the science conversation and all that. You know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I just I, Genesis one and two um, are almost everything you could trace back back to Genesis one and two. You know, there's so much happening um throughout uh what we call the old testament the the jewish scriptures and then much more emphatically in the new testament there's just all of these callbacks to genesis 1 and 2 Mm. um by jesus himself and then especially by paul and and others and that's not an accident you know genesis 1 and 2 i I, I said genesis 1 2 because i believe genesis 1 2 gives us the picture of what contended for his own glory and for the good of humans, for the flourishing of humankind. And those two things are intrinsically linked, which is made clear in Genesis 1 and 2 and then throughout the scriptures in various places. So I think for me, you know, the beauty of Genesis 1-2 has a lot to do with a good God ordering a disordered world. You know, the, uh, there's debate about this, but my reading of Genesis 1 and 2, when it tells us that... Um, you know, God creates, he speaks creation into being, you know, uh, the Jewish scholar Everett Fox, he translates the words at the beginning of Genesis 1, um, not that God creates out of nothing, uh, but that God creates out of wild and waste. And he's trying to get, capture the poetic um, language, the poetic linguistic power of the original language in ancient Hebrew, which is like tohu vavohu, which, you know, is very poetic sounding. So he translates it wild and waste. So it's not that there's like nothing, it's that, um, everything is disordered. And so the creation narratives for me are not about the big bang necessarily. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying one thing or another about the big bang. I'm not a scientist. Uh, what I am saying is what I think the story is telling us is that a good God creates an ordered, beautiful world out of a disordered, chaotic world, or, or you might not even call it a world, a disordered, chaotic unreality. He creates a beautiful ordered reality. And the reason Genesis one, two, based on that reading of it is so important to me. My favorite place to preach, I think is because that's the entire human story. Every every moment of the Bible from then, culminating in the resurrection of Christ and the promise of new heaven and new earth, is that same motif. It's a good God creating, ordering, and, and creating a beautiful reality out of a disordered, chaotic unreality, which is the fallout of sin. And we're seeing that even now, you know, and we're, we're feeling it in visceral ways. So I do want to ask, because I, I would be remiss and I would kick myself if I didn't ask you about coronavirus. So in a church where we're structured around intentionally being in the presence of one another, and I'm aware of how weird that sounds when we're talking a continent away over the internet, but <laughs> hey, hey, technology is a thing. How yeah. does a church... If, if you've accustomed people to that, so say it's 15 years from now and that's the way the church is and it's arguably more healthy because we genuinely do life together and I don't disagree with that at all. How does, how does a pastor come alongside people to prepare for the loss if something like a pandemic ever happens again or like what's happening now because there's like a retraction of community which is depressive. So what, what word would you say to that? Because I mean, it's happening now, although church doesn't necessarily happen now like that, but some do. Um, so how, how would you protect against that? Cause that, I think that could be dangerous. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, fr- from give me a little bit more. Frame the question because uh, I thought I thought I was tracking with you, but in ter- and then you were asking about the dangers. Yeah. Um, so so, I, I can, so the way that church to me works now is I could show up at any any Sunday anywhere. I could participate, quote unquote, and I could leave, and nobody would ever know that I'm there. But if we can reframe things in a more analog way. Everyone knows that I'm there because it's such a small body and it's so deeply integrated. And then as I find a church I can plug myself into, that's your family. Like it becomes your family, at least I would hope so. And then something like what's happening with the coronavirus happens and I am removed from my family. Like I'm quarantined. I'm restricted. I can't commune with them. I can't be with them. I can talk to them on the phone, but we both know that's not the same because long distance relationships don't work. So as a pastor if a church is modeled around a more analog style, um, which isn't really what you write in your book, like how do you protect against the feeling of grief and loss? Or should you even protect against that, that the people in the church are going to be like, ah, it's been a month and I haven't been with my people. I'm, this is what I, this is church for me. And now I'm no longer getting that. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, I would not protect against the feeling of grief and loss. I'd actually lean into it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for us at our church today and at so many churches of, of friends who, who serve and lead at churches in town, uh, there is tremendous grief and loss and the grief and the loss is painful. But for me, as I think about the future of the church, uh, it's beautifully hopeful. Hmm. We should be feeling grief and loss. First of all, let me say in you know COVID-19 reality, I believe the wise and responsible thing to do, at least in our part of the world where we live now, not just based on government mandates, but the wise and responsible thing to do is because of Jesus, um, driven by a love of neighbor and uh, a seeking of the common good, the wise and responsible thing to do, I think, is to um, bless the world with our absence mm. uh, and to do the right thing, you know, particularly for the most vulnerable amongst us. And so it's hard and it's a sacrifice. And um, I have cabin fever. I've only been in my house for 48 hours, but, you know, I want to get out. And, uh, but that's even, you know, that's small potatoes to what so many others are dealing with when it comes to like the loss of income, the jobs, like this is such a disruption, but it's the right thing to do. But when it comes to analog, you know, I think the grief and the loss is the good thing. It, it's helping us understand. I mean, think about what's happening, right? Everybody who I've actually gotten some messages, Seth, recently mm. from people that I've like debated about the whole digital online church thing. I've actually recently gotten messages in the last few days, and they're good hearted and these are good people who love the Lord. But I've gotten these little jabs at me, you know, on social media, like, hey man, hope the digital online church thing is working well for <laughs> you, you know, as if they've won some argument. Yeah. And, you know, they're friends and I love them and we have disagreements on our ecclesiology. But my point back to them would actually be like, actually, dude, this is, um, you're just, we're on the front end of the conversation. But what I'm seeing is that when we get to the back end of this thing, what's going to be very clear is that the heavy leaning into digital and online realities as church, and I'm using air quotes here for those listening, it's, it's going to be exposed by this strange time that we're in hmm. because we're just like a couple of weeks into this thing and really a couple of days into the most intense parts of this thing. And already what people intrinsically are feeling is even though I have my Facebook live and FaceTime and Instagram and we can zoom and we're doing all of this, even though we can do all of that, something is missing. Like this isn't quite human in the most uh, beautiful and meaningful, deepest sense. And so I think we're going to get to the back end of this and the grief and the feeling of loss. We lean into it and let people know as those leading and serving in local churches, we cannot, this is what we have to do for the common good, for love of neighbor right now. But when this is over, when it's wise and responsible to do so, we cannot wait to gather with you again, face to face, as Paul says in in 1 Thessalonians. So um, I think it's a good thing to feel this pain, Mm -hmm. to be responsible, but to feel this pain and lean into it in a way where when we can gather again, I think there's just going to be this incredible celebration of like, oh my gosh, I never, I took for granted how meaningful and important it is that we're, we're embodied with one. 
So I've been asking this question to everyone, and I'm going to try to frame it differently for you because I'm trying to frame it differently for everyone. Um, it, I, I, it's, it's a challenge that I've kind of challenged myself to. So you're getting coffee, and uh, someone that you don't know is like, oh, you're a pastor. Tell me about God. And I don't mean the trite response. Like, I mean the one where you're like, yeah, um, you know, they're like, yeah, don't tell me. I don't want to hear Jesus. You say the word Jesus, I'm going to throw this coffee in your face. Like, so when you say the word God, and I, I do want to be clear, you can say the word Jesus. It's fine. It's fine. Um, like, what are you intending to say? Because I'm well aware that they're all metaphors. Like, when we're trying to talk about God, like, the best that we can come up with is not enough. So when you say, when I say the word God or the divine or Yahweh or whatever you want to say, what are you actually trying to mean? Well, um, I'm going to break your rule, man, because for Do me, it. it's you it's hard to talk about. Yeah, it's hard to talk about God apart from Jesus okay. for me. Um, yeah, I, you know, without getting into the details of my own faith journey, I grew up being told a lot about God and not necessarily even like God the Father, just God. Mm-hmm. And uh, went through a whole deconstruction process in my faith that so many go through. And um, what brought me back was the compelling, undeniable story of this, you know, first century Jewish rabbi. Mm. So it's hard for me to talk about God without talking about Jesus. Mm. So I think my honest answer is that that's probably where I'd go. You know, that as a, you know, you can call me whatever. Like I rarely call myself. I rarely self-identify like as a Christian, not, mm. not to say I have a problem with that or, or to deny that I am a Christian. I am one, but that word has such baggage, yeah. you know, particularly today in 2020 uh, in the Western modern Western world. So what we say a lot at our church is not necessarily like as Christians, we say a lot, not just me, but many of our folks will say as followers of Jesus uh, and then whatever you know? Yeah. And so it's hard for me to talk about God without talking about Jesus, you know, and I'm not denying the Trinity or anything. I don't want blogs to go up you know, <laughs> saying that I'm a heretic or anything like that. Uh, you know, God, the father and Jesus, the son of the Holy spirit, totally. But um, it's hard for me to talk about any, any one of those without the other. Yeah. And uh, for me, I think Jesus is, you know, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who, who um, most compelling, and beautifully sort of into the family. Oh, uh, I think my my answer would be to, to break your rule would just be to want to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. You know? Yeah. Well, it's a loose why rule. Why he's such a compelling figure. Yeah. 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 It, it's there a loose go. rule. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'll, I'll give a little more context to that after, in, in a minute. So point people to the places like you, your book's like 200 pages. We didn't talk about most of this stuff in there intentionally. Um, I like to hit some of the things that just speak to me because I'm not a huge fan of usually the questions that the publishers put together because yeah, <laughs> that, I feel like those questions are for people that didn't read the book. Um, if that, yeah, so maybe they're not. Um, and if anyway, it doesn't matter. So where would you point people to if they're like, all right, I got to hear this sermon on Genesis or I want to get a hold of the book or whatever? Like, where would you send people to? Yeah, well, for the book, you know, you can just find the book. It's called Analog Church, um, and you can find that anywhere they sell books. Little boutique online store called Amazon might be a good place. Or, you know, other <laughs> little spots. boutique. Uh-huh. It's niche. And then, uh, yeah, I have a little website, jkimthinks.com. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the only one who thinks. It's just the stuff I'm thinking about. Just that you are thinking. Yeah. And, yeah, I come. Uh, and I have stuff up there about our church, um, uh, you know, teaching stuff, my book stuff, uh, our podcast that that I co-host with a friend, Isaac Serrano. So it's all up there. So my website, probably a good place to go. Well, those will be in the show notes. Jay, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your time. I, I did hear your kids a little bit now and then. I'm going to leave them in. They'll be, they'll be guests on the show. Um, yeah. But I, I'm aware <laughs> of the time commitment. And so thank you to both you, your family, and your wife as well. So appreciate you coming on. I enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely, Seth. That was fun, man. That was a, that was thrilling. I just want you to know it lived up to the billing. I was see, thrilled. See, that's an hour ago, and it was thrilling. So, see, that's seriously, that's man, why I, you're a professional orator. You brought it all full circle. <laughs> so. No, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it so much. Appreciate it.
I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but this show is a free podcast. Like You don't have to buy it. But there are some amazing people that do help create it. And those are the patrons of the show. If you go down to the show notes, click on the link or just Google it. Can I say this at church? Patreon. I mean, there's so many different ways to get there. I want you to become part of that community. Now, I'll be honest, the last few weeks um, with the increase at work that I've had, uh, my attention to that community has waned. And so for the patrons listening, I'm very sorry for that. Um, but I hope that you hear me and, and know that that will not be a long-term thing. It's just been a crazy few weeks for us all, hasn't it? But I am so thankful to those of you that helped create this show. And I would ask a few more of you to pitch into that tent if you're able. If you're not able, just tell a friend about the show. Share your favorite episode. Uh, maybe if in that episode you find the transcript for it and let people know that it's there. So many different ways to connect with each other. And I love it. Very special thanks to the Salt of the Sound again for the use of their music. You do need to check them out. They are fantastic. I pray that you're safe. I pray that you know how blessed you are. I'll talk with you next week. <laughs>